The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Stand with me this morning in reverence for the reading of the Holy Word of God. This morning we'll be reading from the letter of Paul to the Colossians, chapter 1, verse 24 through 29. First Baptist Church of Crosby, hear the word of the Lord. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for all ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of the glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And all God's people said, you may be seated. Let's go to the Lord one more time. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Father, would you make this book live to me? In your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3 and return to your feet, please. We're going to just read these first six verses together. As always, I remind you this is the holy, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God, and it is to be received as such. Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated.
So, most every professing Christian would confess that God has already written the end of the story. As you look at the last two chapters of the book of Revelation or Isaiah 65, and, and you think about our place there in the, in the consummated kingdom of God as Christ Jesus returns and we reign there with him for all eternity. Most every professing believer, they read these stories, they read these prophecies, they read these, the, the, the pictures that God's revealed in Scripture, and they know God's plan will not fail. If there's one thing we know above all other things, it's that Christ Jesus returns and he reigns, and we along with him. But a good question for us to possibly ask then is, how does God accomplish this plan? You see, what I've found is that generally there's one of three ways that men tend to look at this. One of those is what I call the sitcom scenario. You know the way sitcoms work. You've got 30 minutes. Well, I guess 22 minutes once you take out the commercial. So you've got 22 minutes and things are going to go haywire during about 18 of those minutes. It, it may be chaos, but you know in the back of your mind, there's four minutes left to the top of the hour and everything's going to get wrapped up nice and neat. But, but then oftentimes you think backwards about the episode you just watched and you realize, but none of that makes sense. The 18 minutes that came before didn't have anything to do with the last four minutes. They just didn't want us to close the thing off with a, with a cliffhanger or feeling like there were things still left up in the air. There's other people that tend to have this view of God's plan and his purpose as something like floating along a river. Or another way of thinking about it maybe would be that you're on a, on a cruise ship. Now look, you get on the ship at one port and you know for sure I'm headed to the port of destination. But then there's a bunch of other stuff you do along the way. You, you might go to the casinos, you might lay by the pool, you might eat, you might spend time with friends. But frankly, it doesn't matter a whole lot what you do on the ship along the way, you're headed to the port of destination. Or going back to the lazy river idea. You can kind of move left and right, doesn't really matter. The river's going one way and you're going to end up there. But I submit to you there, there's a third option, the biblical option. An option in which every single moment matters. Every decision that we make matters. Every ounce of suffering and pain that we experience, it matters. Now, I bring that up this morning because you recall, perhaps, back in the first chapter of Ephesians, Ephesians 1.9, we read that God has a purpose which he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. That God has a plan that began before the foundation of the world. That in this plan, he was going to bring together all things, things in heaven and things on earth. And if you think about everything that we've studied in chapter 2 and the tearing down of this dividing wall between the Jew and the Gentile, making one new people, one new household, one new house, a holy temple in God. And so the question that we might ask then is, how does God accomplish this thing that he has decreed? Like, what if the early church had been destroyed? What if the Jews or the Romans had had their way in this thing called Christianity that was called the way at that time had just been snuffed out? What if the scriptures had been destroyed or burnt up or lost? What if none of the Christians who were first Jews 
None of these Jewish uh, people that had converted to faith in Christ Jesus, what if none of them had been willing to go to the Gentiles? What would have then happened? Did any of those choices matter? Were any of those decisions meaningful? I ask this at a more personal level as well. You remember that same first chapter of Ephesians, it says that God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Then you fast forward to verse 11 and it says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him. So there's a lot that happens between there, between the foundation of the world and 1978 or whenever it was that you came to hear the gospel. What if you had been born in Afghanistan? What if you had been born to a different family? What if no missionary or no preacher or no evangelist or no parent had ever come and shared this gospel with you? Well, the answer is found, of course, right back in that same first chapter. It says that God works all things. Ta panta. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. You've probably heard the theological phrase before that God not only ordains the ends, but the means. Every single moment in this beautiful tapestry of redemption that God is weaving together, every single thread and every single moment and every single decision and every single person and every single hurt and every single heartache and every single word and every single thought matters. It is all being brought together. You remember we considered some weeks back this picture that we're a poem that God is writing. Every single syllable matters in this poem that God is writing in the redemption, not just of you individually, but as, of us corporately as a people, as he unites all things in Christ Jesus. So again, I say that scripture makes clear that God has determined not just what's ultimately going to happen. This isn't a sitcom that he's just going to jump in and basically override everything that came before, making it all meaningless. It's not just some cruise ship that's headed a direction and it doesn't really matter what you do along the way. You're going to end up at the port of destination. He's determined not just the ultimate ends, but the means and the ways and the steps and the paths. And yes, even and especially the suffering that brings these things to pass, that brings his purposes and his plans to pass. Now, we've already covered this at great length. I'm pointing you back quite a bit to chapter 1 in Ephesians. We already covered this quite a bit, but it bears repeating because our hearts tend to pull in a different direction. Our flesh seems to tell us that we need to look in a different direction. And so as we prepare to look here at this picture that the Apostle Paul paints for us in Ephesians chapter 3, and that's really what this is, is he talks to us about his unique position as an apostle, as part of the foundation of the church, as the one who has been entrusted with this gospel on behalf of us Gentiles, we see here a picture of one of these God-ordained, Christ-exalting means by which God brings his plans to pass. But I, I bring this up again in preparation for this, just as a reminder that if you're still wrestling with these things, they're not easy. Listen, there's tension in this reality that God is working not just towards an ends, but in every single step, every single one of the means that gets us to that ends, there's a tension there and it can be a hard place to live. And so I'm just reminding you that part of my job as your pastor isn't just to deliver hard truths to you, it's to walk through them with you. So if you're wrestling with these things, you're struggling with these things, I remind you that my door is always open. 
I will spend hours with you if that's what is needed, that we can wrestle through these things together. Because I promise there's great comfort that can be found in this. That even in that tension, you can find comfort and assurance and hope that you won't find anywhere else. And so you remember that last week, we considered together this first verse of chapter 3. Where he says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. So you remember that Paul sets out in light of everything that he said in chapter 2, in light of the magnificent ways that God is bringing his plan and his purpose to pass and the uniting together Jew and Gentile and one new man, a holy temple where he meets with us. He sets out to then pray for the people. That's what he says here when he says, for this reason, but then he stops short. How do I know that he's going to a prayer? As I told you last week, you skip down the page to verse 14. He picks it right back up. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. He starts to pray pray, and then he stops short and he goes on what amounts to a 12-verse digression from verse 2 all the way down through 13. As I told you last week, it seems as though as he mentions his imprisonment, he has concern that there might be fear or doubt or anguish or, or... even some concern over whether or not God can actually accomplish his purposes whenever these Gentiles in Ephesus find out about the imprisonment of of Paul. That's why he says in verse 13, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul has concern that these people will lose heart and they won't see God's hand in this. They won't see the way that God is using his imprisonment for their glory. And for their good. And so what the Apostle Paul seems to be doing in this digression is saying, okay, let's slow down and consider the facts. I had a really, I had a great question this week. Actually, it was from, it was from Carter. Carter was asking me a question about the Apostle Peter coming out to Jesus on the water and all that was happening there. And, and part of this conversation turned into me expressing to Carter, you've got to realize you can't believe your lying eyes. Well, discover this we'll uncover this in more detail next week but that we've been called to we're people who have been called to listen and believe and trust in the voice of God not what our eyes not even what our heart in any given moment say it seems as though that's in part what Paul is doing here he's saying don't believe your lying eyes don't see me in prison and count this as a great tragedy oh I don't want to be in prison I'm not calling something that's bad good I don't enjoy the bruises on my body. I don't enjoy the effects of starvation or being shipwrecked or being bitten by a snake. None of these things are fun. But don't believe your lying eyes when they tell you that the whole universe might be spinning out of control. And don't believe your lying eyes that might tell you that the enemy has the upper hand. And so in order to help bring them back to center, he says, let's just consider the facts of the case. What's actually happening here? We recognize that what he said was that he was a prisoner. He wasn't a prisoner of the Jews. He wasn't a prisoner of Rome. He says he was a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He's a prisoner on account of this mystery that's been entrusted to him. We went back to the book of Acts and we read how he was was arrested expressly because he had preached that he had been called by God to go and take this gospel to the Gentiles. It's on account of this message that I'm imprisoned. And why would I not pull away from this message? As we discovered, it's because the love of Christ compels him. It constrains him. It demands of him that he does whatever honors Christ. So that we can say with absolute certainty that the apostle Paul is in prison because it is the will of God. 
Remember we said last week that no matter what suffering comes in our life, we can say that if God is who scripture says he is, we can say with absolute certainty, we are here by God's providence for God's purposes under God's protection. In Acts 9, we read that God said, the risen Christ actually says to Ananias, go, for Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show you how much you must suffer. Excuse me, I will show him how much you must suffer for the sake of my name. So Paul says, what are the important facts of the matter? Number one, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I'm here by his command, by his will. Number two, though, he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. I'm not just here for the glory of God. I'm here for your glory. I'm here for your sake. It's for the good of you Gentiles. That's why he says, don't lose heart. This is for your glory. You remember he wrote to the Philippians. He said, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. As Joseph said to his brothers, it wasn't you who sent me here. It was God to accomplish his purposes, to further his kingdom. I stand here in prison and you reap the benefits. It is to your glory. And then finally, we wrapped it up with recognizing that if it is to God's glory and it is to the benefit of the Gentiles, it is also to Paul's good. Think about the way he marvels throughout this passage, going all the way down through verse 13. He says in verse 8, to me, though I am very least of the saints, this grace was given. It's like he's saying, me, can you believe it? Me, I'm the least of the saints. And yet God gave this grace to me, the grace to be arrested. The grace to be used of God in this peculiar and particular way to take this gospel to the Gentiles and all the suffering that comes with it. This is the unmerited favor of God on my life. I called you to 2 Corinthians 4. I called you to go and read that whole passage. I pray you know that this homework is, it is for your benefit. It is helpful if you'll take the time, maybe as a family in the evenings, and just read through the passages I give you to read. But I called you to read through 2 Corinthians 4. And it was there that we read that Paul's able to speak of this as a light and momentary affliction. Light and momentary, but it's doing something. It's preparing for me an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So I pray that you gave, gave some thought to that this week. Because I am confident that there's not a one of you professing believers in this room that wouldn't take a bullet for Christ Jesus. I imagine probably that there's not a one of you that if called to denounce the name of Christ Jesus or go to prison, you would put your arms out and say, lock me up. But I ask you a much harder question this morning. You would take a bullet for Christ and you would probably go to prison for Christ. Would you suffer through a difficult marriage for Christ? Would you be willing to overlook an offense for Christ? Would you be willing to allow your children to miss out on all types of extracurricular opportunities for Christ? Are you willing to suffer well for Christ? The key word there is well. You will suffer. In this life, you will suffer. Nobody gets to opt out of suffering. The question is, will I suffer like Paul? Will I suffer well? Will I pull back from the pain or the fear or the doubt? Will it cause me to run from God and from God's people? Now, let me make something very clear. You can sit in this room on Sunday morning and still be running from God. 
Or will this suffering be a tool in the hands of God that leads you deeper into communion with him? Deeper into community with his saints? You see, it's times of suffering that reveal what's really in our heart. It's times of hardship. It's times of just general, ordinary busyness that reveal where our priorities are. That reveal what's most precious to us. We're going to take communion next Sunday morning. We're going to come to the Lord's table together next Sunday morning. And this used to be a pattern, and I don't know why I moved away from it, but I'm calling you today to this, to, to consider this. Would you consider fasting from today through next Sunday? You won't die. I mean, some of you might. I'm not a doctor. But generally speaking, most of you will not die going a week without food. But what will happen a week without food is you'll find some things that were deep down in your heart. It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity, one, to say to God with your body what prayer says with your heart. It's an opportunity to reveal to yourself how addicted you are to the things of this world. It's an opportunity to continually preach to yourself the gospel that only he satisfies, not this donut on a plate. And so I would encourage you to consider this or something like it. And I promise you that little speck of bread never tastes better. But it's meant to show us a hunger for Christ. And when we go through times of suffering, we find out who do we turn to? Where do we run? Do we pull back from him or do we go deeper? Do we find comfort in the words of our living Savior? Do we find comfort in his body, in his people? Do we want to cling to his people? Give me Christ and give me his bride because only he is enough. Or do you pull back in the suffering? So from there, he goes into, of course, this digression. Let's start considering that together this morning. Believe it or not, we're going to cover two verses this morning, which might be a record for me. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, verse 2. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. He says here in the beginning, assuming that you have heard. Now, if you read from the King James Version or the NASB Version, it says, if indeed you have heard. And so it can make it sound as though Paul were unsure. Like, I wonder if you've heard this thing about me. I wonder if you're aware of the fact that I've been called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, that would certainly be a weird thing for the Apostle Paul to say as one who had spent more than three years with the church there in Ephesus. And not just that, but one as a holy apostle that introduced the Holy Spirit and the whole idea of a new baptism to these people. And so some people had therefore taken this verse and those older translations to indicate that this letter wasn't actually written by Paul, that it was written by someone who was a companion of Paul or someone who mimicked Paul's writing style or something like this. But number one, I would remind you that it had been some years since Paul was in Ephesus. And there would have surely been turnover in the church. That's what happens in churches. People come and people go. And so there may have been people there that hadn't actually met the Apostle Paul. But just grammatically as well, we find that these two little short Greek words that are used here, they're used again in the fourth chapter, in chapter 4, verse 20. There also it's translated as assumed. But this is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him. This is not a statement of uncertainty. It's a statement of presupposition. It's like he's saying, of course you know. 
Say, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Of course you know this truth about me. Of course you know the stewardship that's been given to me. As surely you've heard. So he says, assuming you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. This word stewardship, some of you may remember it from back in chapter 1. It's the word oikonomia. It can mean just a plan. That's the way it's translated there. Ephesians 1 verse 9 where we read that God has lavished the riches of his grace upon us, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan. That's the same word, as a plan for the fullness of time. So it can mean that, a plan. In fact, in this same flow of argument, we get to chapter, uh, verse 9 of chapter 3. We read that Paul had been chosen to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages. So this word, this Greek word, it can just mean plan, but it can also mean the responsibility of management. It can also mean the commitment to carry out the plan. This word sometimes can be thought of as like a household manager. And think back to one of Jesus' parables, the one of the dishonest manager in Luke 16. We read that same word used there where this man is charged with the handling of the goods of another. He's got a rich master and his job isn't to make decisions about what happens with the stuff. It's to carry out his master's plan. So it's a picture of management. And that's the second usage is the one we use here. That's why I think this is a proper translation where it says stewardship. He says, I was given a stewardship. So when we bring these pieces together, it's like he's saying, I know you've heard about the management of God's plan that's been given to me. As surely people have told you, I've been a steward, a manager, a household servant in this household that God is building. And that's the way he views himself. That's a proper way for all servants of God to view themselves, but especially the Apostle Paul. He views himself as a steward or a caretaker or a manager of God's grace. And we're going to talk a lot about grace, about his stewardship of God's grace, but I've got to make a point at, at this moment to make sure that we're all on the same page. You see, if we're not careful... And many churches have fallen into this trap. If we're not careful, we can begin to view grace as a thing. As a thing to be distributed. Instead of recognizing that grace, that all the blessed promises of God, they only come to us in a person, in Christ Jesus. Going back to the first chapter, we read that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Where? In Christ. What is he a stewardship of? What is he a steward of? What is he being given stewardship of? It's the gospel, the mystery of Christ Jesus, and in him, all the promises of God, all the unmerited favor of God found in him. Nonetheless, he says that this is God's house, and God has entrusted certain things for me, and I'm not free to simply receive these things to my own benefit or to use them as I see fit. He's the master, and he directs me. I'm obligated by his plans, and I trust in his wisdom. And that really is a question that comes before us all at various moments in life. Do I trust God's wisdom? The reality is, if you were to take all the universe, all just the human knowledge that can be known, despite the fact that you have a cell phone in your hand, all the human knowledge, all the, all the human intellect that can be gathered together, it's but a fraction of what is true and what is right and what is good. But even of that which you know, how much of it do you think rightly about? How vast is your wisdom? I can't, it's like I'm viewing the world through a people. I only see this much of what's actually happening. And even of the things I see, I can't trust my lying eyes. I can't trust my lying heart. 
And so what he says is, I not only trust God, I not only carry out this plan because he's the master and I'm the servant, but because he has all wisdom and he has all knowledge. Therefore, I carry out his plans and his purpose. And if his plan and his purpose calls for my imprisonment and my going to prison furthers his purpose and leads to his glory, then so be it. I'll find opportunity to rejoice in this because my ultimate purpose is not to carry out this plan in the way that seems fit to me. It's to please him. That's what it means to be a good servant. I'm not worried about all the immediate outcomes. That, that can be the temptation of the enemy, right? Look, I know the end, of the, the end of, the, of the line. I know the last picture. It's that God is building this church. This church that will not be destroyed. But if I make my purpose something other than pleasing Him and trusting in Him, what do I do? I bring my efforts and my flesh to accomplish His purposes. There's nothing more disgusting to God than man trying to please him in the flesh. And so I must make my desire. I'm going to please my master more than I'm going to accomplish his purposes. I trust that when I please the master in this, he's accomplishing his purposes. Do you see the difference? So he says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. So in Paul's case, he's got a unique opportunity. We're not always told the reason God has allowed us to suffer the way we've suffered or why we receive the particular grace that we receive. In Paul's case, he was told it's for the Gentiles. He was told right off the bat, this is why I've called you to myself to take this news to the nations, to take this gospel to the Gentiles. That's who he is guarding it for. And this is not the only place that Paul has expressed this idea that he is a steward or a manager of God's grace. 1 Corinthians 4.1, he's talking about himself or Apollos or Peter. He says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required as stewards that they be found faithful. Or speaking of the whole church, Peter says this, 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. He's saying God bestows various, various gifts of grace upon his people. God gives grace and he gives gifts to every member in the church. But the purpose of these gifts is not merely for their own benefit. It's for the building up of the church. That's what we're going to discover when we get to chapter 4 is that God's purpose in handing out gifts to you and to you and to you is not just that you could lavish in his grace. It's that through that grace, you're used to build this thing that he is building, to building up the body, that this is how God accomplishes his plan. But there's a particular grace that was given to Paul, and we do well to remember this. Look, Paul says, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. We have much to learn from the ministry of Christ and even the ministry of of, of Paul and, and all the saints of old, we can look to them and we can see something about the way we are meant to carry this grace. Something about the, what it means to suffer well. But at the same time, that doesn't do away with the reality that this is a one-time deal. The apostles and the prophets, they're the foundation of the church. You only lay the foundation once. And so he's saying here that there's a peculiar grace that was given to the apostle Paul. A unique and unrepeatable way that God is working through him. And that's why we see all this talk about himself. I told you last week, the Apostle Paul is not one to talk about himself. 
He doesn't, he's not an egomaniac. He doesn't go off on tangents about himself unless there's a purpose. But we do see a lot of, a lot of reference to himself here. In verse 2, he's a, been given the stewardship of God's grace, the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. Verse 3, the mystery was made known to me. Verse 4, you can perceive my insight. Verse 8, to me, though on the very least of the saints, this grace was given. There's something unique that God is doing here. This particular grace that God has given him. And I think it's important that we see it as a grace when we think about Paul's role as an apostle. We recognize that God hasn't just given him a responsibility and a title. God hasn't just called him to an office. He's given him the grace by which he can carry out everything that God's called him to do. In verse 7 he says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. This is always God's pattern. I've, I've laughed before as I think back to the first sermon I ever preached to you guys. Long before I was going to had any thoughts that God might calling me to be a pastor. As, fact, as a matter of fact, the way I began that sermon was by saying, I will never, ever, ever be a pastor. But I preached the sermon. Oh, what is it? It's Second, Second Chronicles 6.19, I think. That the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth, searching to and fro, seeking those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And I think, I've, I think I've told you before, don't ever try to go listen to that sermon again. It's trash. And I don't mean it's trash in terms of delivery or in terms of the, the references I use or in terms of anything. I'm talking about my exposition of the text was trash. Because I came to the conclusion from that text that what God was doing was he was searching through the earth high and low, trying to find the right kind of people who were equipped for his work. Trying to find the right kind of people that he could use in his kingdom. Like he, was a, like he was an employer out there on Indeed or Jobs.com trying to find the right applicant for the job. That's the opposite of what God does. God's pattern is always to choose the weak and the foolish and the ennoble to do his purposes. He calls and then he equips, not the other way around. He doesn't find the equipped and say, that looks like the kind of guy that my kingdom could really use. Want a job? We see this in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, the Apostle Paul again talking of himself. He says, for I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. I've also jokingly told you about, I know some of you in this room, and I think of, Carrie, I'll call you out specifically. When they said, we think we're going to call Josh Shield to be our next pastor. And Carrie's response was, no. I wasn't equipped. God was equipping me. And I pray to God that I look backwards. As do each of you. As those who have been given various gifts of grace from God. I pray that you look backwards five years from now and say, Oh my goodness, look what God has done. I worked harder than all the rest. It was hard work. I studied and I prayed and I beat my body for the sake of the kingdom of God. And it wasn't I, but his power in me. And I look backwards and I see the way he was continually equipping and using and building me up for the sake of the body. I pray that you too are able to look back at lessons you taught or prayers that you offered or things that you thought about God and laugh in five years. And say, how childish was my faith at that time. And now look what God has done. 
look at what I see in his word that otherwise was Charlie Brown's teacher to me, but now it makes perfect sense. Would there have been anybody less likely to be called to be the apostle to the Gentiles than Paul? But again, I said, it's exactly what God does. And he does it this way so that only he can get the glory. Second Corinthians four, he says that we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Why does he choose weak people? Why does he choose foolish people? Why does he choose ordinary people and then equip them so that he alone can get the glory? So it can be made clear that any power to do anything that means anything in the kingdom of God, anything that lasts, it comes from him and him alone. So we continue on in verse three. We see something about the specifics of this grace. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. What is this grace? How the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've written briefly. This word mystery, it's mysterion. It can also be translated as secret. And we're going to find this term used over and over again three times just here in the third chapter of Ephesians. And so for many people, you hear this word mystery and it conjures up something that's mystical. Conjures up something that's vague and nebulous and undefinable. Something that's completely incomprehensible. And so we'll hear people that speak in these type of terms. They'll say, you know, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Or they'll say, you know, I, I don't really like to try and define my relationship with God. Or they'll say by implication. While they may not come out and say it, they say by implication, either through the way they operate their church or the way that they preach their sermons. What they say is that to require men to hold a certain doctrinal statements or to hold any level of precision in the way that we speak about God is unhelpful and unspiritual. But you all know that we are people who have built our lives on propositional statements of truth. Our faith is grounded on the veracity of certain claims of absolute truth. Think, think about just the Apostles' Creed. We're saying, I, I believe in certain things to be true. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe that to be true. A statement of absolute truth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Not only this, I believe he was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Not only this, I believe that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, that he was crucified, that he died, that he was buried. I believe he descended into hell. I believe the third day he rose again. We believe these things to be absolute statements of historical fact and truth. We believe that he ascended to heaven, that he's seated at the right hand of the Father now. We believe that it's from that same place that he'll return to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in the Holy Catholic Church. We believe in the communion of the saints. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. We believe in the resurrection of the body. We believe in life everlasting. Amen. We believe these things are true. If any of those things aren't true, then we're lost. We believe in propositional statements of absolute truth. It's not nebulous. It's not undefinable. It's not left up to everybody to understand what they want to believe to be true about God. That's why when Paul speaks about mystery, he's speaking about something that is transferred and he transfers it with the assumption you're going to receive it. In Romans eleven twenty five, he's talking about the mystery of the hardening of Israel. He says, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. I want you to know it. I want you to be aware of it. 
Colossians 4.3, pray also for us that God may open a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. He's saying this mystery, it's a statement that you can receive and it's a statement that can be made clear. That's the picture of a mystery. But we've got to correct going in the other ditch though, right? While a mystery is not something nebulous and undefinable and unattainable, it's also not something that man in his unaided intellect can ever arrive at. You, you hear mystery and oftentimes people think of mystery novels, right? There's some clues, there's some hints, and it's your job to put all the pieces together. You're, you're reading the story or you're watching the movie and you're trying to get ahead. You're, you're proud when you're the first one in the room that you can figure out where this thing is headed. But I remind you that the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 2, that's your homework for this week. Go read 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians 2, 7, he says that our, this wisdom that we possess, it is not of this age. But we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. And I think that this might be the best picture, the, the best definition for you to have in your mind of a mystery. It's a hidden secret. Rather than a mystery, because mystery, I say, sometimes takes us back to the idea of a puzzle to be solved. And as I often tell you, God is not a puzzle to be solved. He's a mystery to behold. He's a secret. What is a secret but something which is hidden? The secret is something that cannot be known until somebody tells you the answer to the secret. And yet, once it's revealed, it becomes clear to everyone who has eyes to see it or ears to hear it. So in the words of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says this, it is a mystery in a sense that man in his unaided, fallen mind and intellect can never discover or arrive at it. But when it is revealed to him by God, even the simplest of man is able to understand it. Matthew eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Hidden and revealed. That's the picture. I thank you that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. That's the story of a mystery. It's a secret to be told, not a puzzle to be solved. Now, I do need to make one more point of clarification with regards to mystery. In and around Ephesus and during this time, there was a whole lot of these mystery religions or mystery cults. And they were grounded in certain rites and rituals. And, and, and if, you could, if you'd go through the proper ceremony, then they would reveal the, the mystery to you. You recognize that we're a people who access into the kingdom requires you to know the secret. It's at the front door. Here it is. We freely give it to you. But to these mystery cults, to these false religions... You had to be initiated in, and then we would tell you this mystery. And so surely there were people living in Paul's day, and they would have heard him talking about mystery, and that's what they would have immediately had their minds go to. Only the initiated, only the exceptional, only the special people would have had access to this truth, whereas common folks would have had no way of knowing anything about it. But again, I tell you, that's not at all the way that Scripture speaks of a mystery. Remember, what Paul's saying here is that this mystery has not just been revealed to him, but in verse 5 he says, to the other apostles and prophets as well. But it's not just been given to him and the other apostles and prophets. They're stewards for the sake of others. Verse 9, their job is to bring to light for everyone, for everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. So if we consider all this together, we begin to get some kind of a real picture of what a mystery is, what it means to speak of the mystery of God. It's not a thing that's unknowable. 
It's not a thing that can be solved like a puzzle. It's not a thing that's only given to a select and elite group of individuals. It's a secret. It's a secret to be told. It's something that was once hidden, but has now been revealed. That's exactly what he says here, isn't it? He says, assuming you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, it was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Apocalypsis is the word there for revelation. When you hear that, you immediately know that we get our word apocalypse from this word. So what comes to mind whenever you, I just did a Google search yesterday and typed in the word apocalypse and looked at all the things that came up and I weeded out anything that was secular and just went to the, the, the religious or, or Bible based type sites. And anytime you talk about apocalypse, everybody's mind immediately goes to what? The cataclysmic return of Christ Jesus, right? The judgment of Christ coming to, to slay his enemies and to save those that are his. But I remind you that the way that Jesus spoke about these things, think about towards the end of his life in John 16. He says, a little while longer and you will not see me. And again, a little while after that, you will see me again. He's talking about going away. You won't see me any longer. Then think about the picture that we have there on that mountain in Acts 1. Acts 1, 9 says, and when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. There's a sense in which Jesus is going up and now he is veiled. Now he is covered. Now he is hidden in the clouds. And you fast forward to the end and you read about his return. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 7. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. Same word. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That yes, with the apocalypse, with the revelation of Jesus Christ, does come the destroying of his enemies and does come the salvation of his friends. But the main point of the whole thing is the revelation of Christ Jesus. The coming of Christ Jesus no longer clouded, no longer hidden, no longer veiled. So when we begin to think about things in these terms, it begins to make a lot more sense when we talk about this mystery that was once hidden and has now been revealed. This truth. That had once been veiled, an impenetrable veil. A veil that you don't have a smart enough mind to somehow pierce through. It's only when the God who has placed the veil there removes it. Allows us to see the picture that things make sense. But even as that story is told to us, even as the mystery is, is, uh, is conveyed to us. In order for us to rightly understand it, there's something that must be done. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 3 says this. Even if our gospel is veiled. It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I want you to think about this. We don't know whether Paul ever met Jesus in the flesh. We know he met him after the resurrection. But surely the apostle Paul had heard the stories of the life and the death and even the claims of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as had many. There were many who had been around Jesus. There were many disciples who ate miraculous food from his hand and yet did not believe. He appeared to them to be as nothing but an ordinary man. His own brothers until the resurrection thought nothing of Christ Jesus. Saw nothing spectacular or particularly enticing about their brother. So for them, their eyes had been veiled by the evil one, by the enemy. They couldn't see the mystery. 
And this was the case with Paul as well. He had heard all these things about Christ Jesus. He had analyzed all the data. He had considered all the facts. And he came to the conclusion, this Christ is one to be persecuted. That's why when he's talking to King Agrippa, Acts 26, 9, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. The mystery had not yet been revealed to Paul. He had all the facts. He had all the data, but his eyes were blinded. And so we recognize that this revelation is a thing that can only come. No man could ever arrive at seeing the glory of God in Christ of his own ability. That's why that same chapter, 2 Corinthians 4, goes on to say, For God who said, Let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This mystery is not a thing that can be beheld, rightly beheld and understood apart from the supernatural working of God. That's why he says in verse 3, the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Not I figured it out. He was completely passive in this deal. Or verse 6, he says, it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. It takes the Spirit of God, the supernatural working of God to allow them to behold this mystery. 1 Corinthians 2, the text I asked you to read as a family this evening says, these things God has revealed to us through his spirit. Now we, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. These things have freely been bestowed upon us by God. But if we're going to have any hope of understanding them, we need the spirit of God to come. We need the veil to be lifted. We need to be given eyes to see and ears to hear. But again, I say there's something unique about the Apostle Paul's ministry that is not true of any one of us in this room. Next week, we're going to talk about the beauty of Paul's writing and the glory of our being able to read and understand it. We have this indirect communication of this revelation. Wasn't the case with the Apostle Paul. He received direct revelation from God. And he, and he revels in this in his letter to the Galatians. He comes right out the gate. Galatians 1.1, he says, Paul, an apostle, not of men, nor through men, but through Jesus Christ, and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He says, man can't make an apostle. Remember I told you earlier, man can't make a Christian? A Christian is a miracle. Remember I also told you men can't make a church, only God can make a church? Similarly, man don't make apostles. It takes God to make an apostle. But he goes on in verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor is it taught but I received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. But when he who had set me apart from before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to receive his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. He's saying this gospel that I preach, I don't owe it to Peter or to James or to John. I don't owe it through transmission of other men. I received it directly from the one who had set me apart from my mother's womb. I received this word directly from God. And therefore, to make sure that this message was pure, I did not first go to Jerusalem. I didn't consult with the other apostles. I went out in Arabia and then eventually to Damascus. So that when he says this revelation was given to me by God, certainly it began there on the road to Damascus, but it continued through some time as God spoke. 
So again, I'll point this out to you to make clear, this is an unrepeatable thing. How often have I told you that the most dangerous wor words in all the world that a man can utter is, God has said to me. God has said a lot of things to you and they're contained in this word. The Holy Spirit comes and presses this word upon your heart and may show you particular application of this word in your life. But the authoritative word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that was delivered once and for all. It was handed down directly from God to Paul, from Paul to us. This is a unique thing. And this is made clear by the, by the fact that you still had in Acts 15, the church wrestling through this particular aspect, this particular grace, that this mystery, this gospel was to go to the Gentiles as well. And you're talking about years later after the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the people are still wrestling with this truth. So who would he have gone to? Who could have revealed this thing to Paul? Who would have ever thought, based on everything that we see leading up to that point, who would have ever thought that in order for the Gentile to come into the family of God, he didn't first have to become a Jew? And that is what the mystery is. He says the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You Gentiles don't have to become Jews to get to God. You have direct access. No man would have ever thought up such a thing. It took a revelation from God to Paul, and we praise God for it. Paul has written down these things for us to read. That's where he finishes this third verse. As I've written to you briefly, and we will touch on this in greater detail next week, but... It, it, it seems to me that the Apostle Paul loves to talk about this thing. He loves to retell the story, not for his own glory, but to make clear this is a supernatural work of God. Not just in the sending of his son, not just in his death and his burial and his resurrection, but even the transmission of this word. Even the handling of the gospel, even the disseminating of this mystery. This is all owed to the supernatural work of God. Now, again, I tell you, this is an unrepeatable thing. You will not receive direct revelation from God. You're not going to receive a vision of your own or a mystery of your own to be transmitted to other people. But I do pray that you recognize that the thing that you hold in your hand, how very precious it is. The powerful working of God that was necessary to bring this word to you and how very foolish we would be to handle it lightly. How very foolish we would be to not consume ourselves with understanding as much of this as God would give us understanding of. To devoting our lives to understanding what God actually means by what God has actually said. And I pray that through this, this understanding of the supernatural way by which God has brought not just his son to this world, not just his son to the cross, not just his son into glory, but the supernatural way by which God has made sure that you receive this mystery, that this would cast out all doubt and all fear and all insecurity and all lack of assurance. Trusting that if God would do all of that, to make sure that I would hear and trust in his gospel, surely he will not stop short. Surely he will not leave me as I am. Surely he will not fail to come and receive me in glory. Father God, we praise you. We thank you, Father, for this day. This day that we have set aside, Father, to be spent resting in the finished work of Christ Jesus and gathering together. We thank you for this word, Father. We thank you for what you did through this man called the Apostle Paul. The unique way you worked in transmitting this word. Delivering it directly to him and then handing it down to us. I pray that we would be 
like Timothy, Paul, as Paul said to him, to, to guard. To guard this deposit that's been entrusted to us. That we would see ourselves, not just Paul, we would see ourselves as stewards of this grace. That we have a responsibility to know it and to love it and to understand it. And then to preach it and to teach it and to understand it. I pray for fathers all throughout this church, Father, that they would recognize that their primary responsibility in their home, in addition to loving their wife and washing her in the word, is to raise their children to know and to fear you. To raise their children to understand what you have said in this word. I pray through all of this, Father, that we would be a bold and a confident people. Knowing if you would do all this to get us a book, how would you ever stop short, ever withhold any good thing from us? So again, Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.